Hello, this is Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. Today's special episode is dedicated to the recent San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Discussing all of the key practice-changing papers are Eva Segalov, Craig Underhill, Amelia McCartney and Steve Vogel. I hope you enjoy today's entertaining and informative episode. As ever, links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, please subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter for free on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Bavin and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. It's going to be a great pleasure because it's all our favourite people. Good morning, Craig. Morning, Eva. And with us, we have the wonderful Dr. Amelia McCartney, now back in Melbourne, who is still our European as well as Australian breast specialist. Good morning, Amelia. Good morning. Very early. It is early here, but it's, as our next speaker said, it's yesterday, happy yesterday in New York. It's none other than the amazing Steve Vogel. G'day. G'day. Thanks for coming back. It's a privilege. So first up, we're going to get straight into it. It's been a great meeting, lots of new information. I think some of the things might give less rather than more, but some interesting papers. First one, it seemed to be all the talk, chitter chatter in the media was about Responder and Risklin. So, Amelia, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about those studies, yes. maybe Responder first? That's RX Ponder. Yeah, whether we're going to be calling it Responder or RX Ponder. This was a really highly anticipated trial coming off the back of Taylor X. And, you know, Taylor X was released a couple of years ago looking at the use of Oncotype with node negative patients. Responder is basically looking at possible de-escalation in patients with node positive disease. So just to briefly recap for people who weren't at San Antonio, Responder took just over 5,000 women with oncotypes between 0 and 25, which corresponds to a low or intermediate risk classification as classified by Taylor X previously. They had to have node positive disease, so they had between one and three positive nodes, and obviously HER2 negative and hormone receptor positive. They randomised these women to either having adjuvant chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy or endocrine therapy alone, and then basically had a look to see whether the outcome was different. So firstly, there was no association between the risk score classified by Oncotype and chemotherapy benefit, which essentially means a higher risk score didn't correlate with more benefit from chemotherapy across the board. That then they actually did find by looking at menopausal status a difference. So basically cutting to the chase, in postmenopausal women, there is no benefit from chemotherapy if they have one to three nodes and a risk score between zero and 24. So that's really the bottom line, which is really important because a lot of our postmenopausal women will now be able to forego chemotherapy with node positive disease. And this is a group where often we would automatically give chemotherapy. However, in the premenopausal women, the IDFS rate, which is the primary endpoint, was 94.2% versus 89%. Uh, for endocrine therapy alone, which was not statistically significant. 
sorry, it was statistically significant. It's too early in the morning. So there was a lot of talk about why this was the case, you know, whether it was actually a chemotherapy effect or whether it's due to ovarian function suppression. I'd actually be interested to see if Steve thinks this is actually 100% due to ovarian suppression secondary to the chemotherapy or whether there might be something biologically different in these young women to suggest that they, you know, they might still get some benefit. So I wish I knew. <laughs> I agree with you entirely that I think this study tells us that we don't have to give the postmenopausal women with the recurrent score in the range tested chemotherapy in addition to modern hormonal therapy, which was basically tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor singly or in a one after the other. There's a problem because the question they asked is not the question that we've just answered. They wanted to ask that question, but a little birdie told me they couldn't. There was no one willing to pay for a study big enough to answer the question, do these ladies need chemotherapy, which is really a non-inferiority question. Mm. Taylor Rx, they turned the question upside down to get the statistics to work. I just read the paper again today. Instead of the null hypothesis being that there's no difference, the null hypothesis was that there was a difference. And they were willing to take a 10% chance that they would say that there was no difference when there really was a difference in Taylor X. So here they couldn't, even with the finagles, and I don't know the details of the negotiations, but they had to choose an endpoint, which was not the question they were really interested in. No one's really interested in the characteristics of the Oncotype DX, we're really interested in whether we have to give these ladies chemotherapy or we can let them go on with their lives with their hair intact and not having neuropathy and not vomiting for a few months. That said, we're never going to get this study again. And it was a very large study. And the results they got were not the results they wanted. It's not like you have some company trying to make money out of this study. There's no money involved. So, Steve, are you actually using Oncotype in node-positive women there in America, like in your so practice? it goes like this. There are some doctors, you know, who sometimes buy the bridge connecting Brooklyn to Manhattan who have been doing that. I would not because I thought there was no prospective trial showing that that would distinguish the benefits of chemotherapy or no benefits. There is now. So I have not up until now. And all the patients I've seen, I said, I'm not convinced you don't need chemotherapy if you had one, two, or three positive notes. Are you convinced now? I'm as convinced as I possibly can be. <laughs> I mean, what would I like? I would like a study big enough that had a non-inferiority limit and that showed that deleting the chemotherapy didn't exceed the non-inferiority limit. But there's no one in the world willing to pay for that study. So, Amelia or Steve, in the past, before we had these gene array tests, we often looked at other biological factors in the tumour, such as strongly low KI67, to sort of help stratify the risk. Do you think these tests really offer more than already known biological factors in the tumours? So the reason the oncotype with its recurrence score offers more is that we have studies like this that looked at chemotherapy or not. Right before Taylor X, all we had was a very small you know, selection from a randomized study 
of methotrexate and fluorouracil with or without cytoxin. There were two different chemotherapy arms versus no chemotherapy. And the patients that were looked at were the ones who had blocks left over 20 years later that could still be analyzed for mRNA. It was only about 600 patients in a study of about 2,000 who were looked at. It was a funny randomization. There was a randomization sometime, but there were all sorts of unknown biases. That's all we had before. So now we have these studies that not only tell us who can be spared chemotherapy, but who will benefit from chemotherapy. So this was the prospective nature of these studies that gives you the confidence that it's a more robust way to make the decision. Sure, because everything else is we treated a bunch of patients and this is what we saw. And we really don't know how they were selected. The process of randomization gives you a great deal of confidence that you can tell your patient you're similar to the randomized patients. So I have confidence you should go by the results. So, Steve, what about the premenopausal women? So it's, I think, quite clear from the results of the study, even though this was not their hypothesis, that the premenopausal women benefit from chemotherapy and they benefit essentially independent of their recurrence score. I think that means the hazard ratio is about the same. I think the benefit for someone with the absolute benefits may vary according to their clinical characteristics. So it could be that the chemotherapy magically works in these ladies. It's more likely that the chemotherapy is working by destroying ovarian function. Now, we know about shutting down ovarian function. We have a wonderful study called SOFT. And in the study, SOFT, the big problem with studying ovarian function in women giving chemotherapy is that most of the women had already lost it from the chemotherapy. So SOFT randomized women who hadn't lost their ovarian function to get it shut down or not. So all the patients in SOFT, practically, the higher-risk patients got chemotherapy, ovarian function suppression, only work had a significant benefit in the higher-risk patients. So all the patients that benefited had had chemotherapy. That makes sense? Yep. Yeah. So ovarian function suppression works, and it works after chemotherapy. So there's going to be a discussion with every patient. Well, I have data on chemotherapy. I have data on ovarian function suppression. You have enough risk. Should we give you one or both? And then it becomes which chemotherapy, and how should we suppress your ovaries, and for how long? There's an option here which wasn't in the study, as these options were not in the study. We can suppress ovaries if you're in a resource-poor environment in rural India or Afghanistan. You can give daily oral cyclophosphamide, 100 milligrams for six months, and the ovaries will stop, and almost for sure they'll stay stopped. And you don't have to give expensive shots. I think the problem, obviously, for people practicing in Australia is our ongoing difficulty of financially accessing Oncotype. So MSAC has continuously rejected sort of submissions for Oncotype in the node negative setting over the years. It's had five resubmissions so far. It really goes to sort of, you know, I'm not sure whether they're going to resubmit now for the node positive group. But even if we were to get funding in Australia, I think then the impetus, because the tissue needs to go overseas and come back with results, the impetus is going to be that somebody will need to have discussions with patients very, very early. It's too late if they come to clinic five weeks after their mastectomy or lumpectomy, and then we're having the conversation for the first time, we've missed the boat. So surgeons will probably need to sort of come on board here, I think, unless, you know, we get very, very early referrals for adjuvant sort of therapies. 
at least in the node positive patients, saves money. That's great. Well, chemotherapy is cheap, but Oncotype is not. That's the thing. The Oncotype uh, in American dollars is, I think, $3,500. Yeah, we're being asked, I think they priced it, I think, about 5000 Australian dollars per shot. And if you think about the cost of an off-patent chemotherapy, it's, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, we're giving a lot of women CDK46 inhibitors at 10000 American dollars a month. Yeah, And I would think that there are enough Australian women who either have had breast cancer or fear it, that they would love to get their government to pay for a test that will spare some of them chemotherapy that does them no good. So we published on this series of Australian doctors who'd ordered a lot of Oncotype. And at the time I'd ordered, I think, one of the most in Australia. And the reaction of the women when they get a score that helps make a decision. And I tried to only do it where there wasn't a clear cut, where the MDT had said individual discussion, we don't know. But there's no doubt that they don't assess the proper financial toxicity of having chemotherapy. So they don't count the hospital cost, the labour cost. They don't count the impact on the patient, the lack of their impact on their work and productivity. So for me, it's a real no-brainer and it really is something where Australia is really lacking to come into the modern era. I've always thought far too many women get chemotherapy for no benefit and it's almost like taking off a mole that isn't suspicious just in case and everyone's happy because something was done. But we really have good evidence now and good predictive tests for the benefit of chemotherapy in the most part. My question moving on to our next topic is, there is data about incorporating clinicopathological factors along with Oncotype, and that's the RSClin tool. So, Amelia, will you talk us to that? Yeah, so RSClin is great if you can actually get your hands on Oncotype. So RSClin is, in short, a way of integrating the risk score from Oncotype with clinicopathological features. And at San Antonio, some data was presented looking at pooled data from about 10,000 patients, which were drawn from the Taylor X study as well as the NSA BP14 and B20 trials. And basically the RSClin sort of model, which I can't profess to actually fully understand the mathematics behind it, inputs age, tumour size, tumour grade and risk score, some of them as continuous variables, doesn't take into account menopausal status and then outputs an estimated 10-year distant recurrent risk with endocrine therapy alone and an estimation of chemotherapy benefit. Steve, you have the Oncotype DX available to you, so will you be using this RSClin model in the US? Yes, but at least as far as I can tell, I haven't studied it as well as I probably should. I'm probably not capable of studying as well as I should. So there are two problems that I can tell from Meredith Reagan's analysis on what in the eastern United States was Friday evening. The first is that it has no provision for menopausal status in the younger women. All right. So it will tell you that for a young woman that the patient needs chemotherapy when, in fact, she's a postmenopausal woman functionally. So they really didn't collect data for this. And we don't know. So I think it should be RS Clin with two asterisks. 
One, if it's a young postmenopausal woman, don't use this test. And the other asterisk should be when they're projecting their benefits in what amounts to data-free zones. The data-free zone is from 26 to 30. There is no randomized trial looking at giving or not giving chemotherapy to these women. So what Meredith Reagan showed on one of her slides, it's very hard to count them because she used animation, that the prognosis, the benefit from chemotherapy for a woman with a 1.8 centimeter grade two tumor was a 15% improvement in distant disease-free survival at 10 years. And there probably isn't that much risk, but they just took the number for all patients 26 or over in Taylor X and plastered it across there, I think. They did a little smoothing, so I'm afraid that 25 may be too high. So I would worry about taking the number off of 25, and I would rather use the older grouped analysis where they took clinical high risk based on size and grade. And that was in the previous paper, I believe, two years ago. So just for the audience, the trial cutoffs for Oncotype DX are different from the commercially available cutoffs that are given for the low, intermediate and high, just to be conservative. Taylor X basically sort of rewrote the classification group. There are reasons for it, but whether they're actually correct is not entirely clear. No, I think Taylor X intended to sort of enrich the intermediate group with lower risk patients. Well, I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to be sure they weren't including too many high-risk patients. Ah, So you see the other way. Have their signal be drowned in lower-risk patients and deny them chemotherapy. So they became more conservative so that more people would get chemotherapy. Hmm. In fairness, Taylor excluded her two positive patients, and they were not excluded from the previous studies, from the studies on which the oncotype was developed. And there still there are, I think, HER2 genes and a HER2 group in the oncotype, two out of 16 genes. And there's actually a floor to the HER2, which may be why it's not important that they're included. Remember, altogether, only half the HER2 positive patients are ER positive. So half the HER2 positive patients were excluded anyway. Anyway, this data is what it is. I wouldn't trust it because they don't have randomized data above 25 for a recurrent score. So above 25, we can talk, but I think they're probably overestimating the recurrences in these young women. So do we think then, have we got to a consensus where in the markets where these drugs are available, they're a useful tool to have a discussion with an individual patient about what age of treatment to give? They're extremely useful because they're the only test that we have that looks at the benefit from chemotherapy, even though the test was designed to try and find women who would do very well without it. Yeah. Who had negative notes. Great. Thank you. So I just want to switch tack now. So we're going to talk about two important CDK46 inhibitor studies, Penelope B with some new information and Monarch E with an update. Steve, do you want to tell us about Penelope B? So Penelope B is a negative study with a little transient positivity. It's a well-done study. It's a study that started in 2013 and recruited for five years, primarily, but not only in Germany. And it took women with estrogen receptor positive tumors that were big enough to justify giving them chemotherapy before surgery. 
And if they still had residual cancer, either in the breast or the nodes, they were randomized with their usual hormonal therapy to a year of palbociclib or not. So this is adjuvant palbociclib, and it started a long time ago. So this is a relatively mature study. The findings were that at four and five years, there was really no difference between getting palbociclib and not. What's very interesting because of the other two studies of CDK4-6 inhibitors was that at two years, there was about a 4% improvement in invasive disease-free survival if you gave palbociclib. Germany's a disciplined country, the German breast group. They weren't looking at two-year invasive disease-free survival. They kept going with the study. It's a much smaller study than the others, only 1,200 women. So it's reported as a negative study. In this study, only 5% of the women, at least as best I can tell from the uh, slides, stopped the palbociclib for toxicity. That's generally hemologic toxicity, compared to about 33% stopping on two years of the same drug in Pallas. Why? Because the study dose reductions and dose discontinuations were written much more strictly, if you like, in Pallas. So patients with any but a little bit of toxicity would get out and they wouldn't keep reducing the dose. So both Pallas and Penelope B are negative studies. So why do I care about Penelope B? Because the negative study, Penelope B, at two years, is as positive as Monarch E is at the end of 2020. It was more positive, in fact. Correct. So tell us about Monarch E, what was updated. So Monarch E is a very similar study. All these studies had a problem. The problem was finding enough events. If you look at all these studies, the patients you know, are doing very, very well. I think Monarchy, 50% of the women had four or more positive lymph nodes. And they got a little chemotherapy and some hormones. And whether they did or didn't get a bemaciclib, they did very well. Very few of them relapsed and hardly any have died so far. But it's very, very early. So why do you think, Craig, that a study of 5,000 women is doing its analysis when about half the patients are still getting the drug? Uh. Would you design a study that way? No. I know the answer. <laughs> At least I think I know the answer. Yeah, I know what you're going to say too. <laughs> <laughs> so, Amelia, what about monarchy and the reaction to the so-called updated data? It's only a couple more months, sure. Yeah, yeah. Three, exactly. 3.6 months, I think, if they keep reporting, you know, every couple of months, we're all <laughs> going to get very bored. So, look, I think we have to accept the possibility that monarchy is a negative trial in the making as Steve has alluded to. So as we can see, so the Penelope B at two years was showing a 4.3% benefit in favour of Palbo. At the moment at 19.1 months in monarchy, we're seeing a 3% difference between the two arms. So, you know, Meredith Regan was asked specifically in one of the sessions, you know, is there a statistical possibility that the curves may come together and meet the same way in monarchy as we have seen in Penelope B. And she basically said, yeah, from a statistical viewpoint, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that this may not happen. So I think, you know, the early adopters of abemocyclib in the, the adjuvant setting, I think they might be jumping off sort of a, a little bit too fast. I think now everybody's saying, okay, let's take a bit of a step back and wait for longer follow-up. 
Definitely. Because yeah. I'm not convinced there's such a big difference between the drugs. I think, you know, a lot of people are trying to push and say maybe abemocyclib is special in some way. We didn't see that in the metastatic trials. Yes, preclinically there is a bit of a difference, but I'm not convinced. I want further so follow-up. There is something different in that abemocyclib, because it makes so much diarrhea, is given at a dose which makes much less marrow suppression. Yeah. And the selectivity is different as well, of course, which is probably why we get the difference in the diarrhea particularly. Okay. I'm not sure I know why it causes diarrhea, why one does and one doesn't. But if you give the drug at a dose that produces lots of marrow toxicity, remember these are by and large being given to postmenopausal women, you have to see the patient very frequently because there's an occasional a neutropenic sepsis and an occasional death, not very many. And it's annoying for the patients. And then you get worried. The patient is healthy, doesn't have such a bad prognosis. You don't want to kill her. So you take her off study. Whereas if you go with a lower dose, you have less marrow suppression and you can keep the patient on, which is what happened. The number of women who discontinued abemocyclib was much, much lower than the ones who discontinued palbociclib in Pallas. Okay. So it's probably a uh, watch this space in the adjuvant. CDK46. Yeah. So if I were the Australian authorities, I wouldn't spend my money on adjuvant CDK46 inhibitors until I had a sustained and important survival difference. I would spend my money protecting the quality of life of Australian women and give them access to the Oncotype DX when they need it. Which is probably what's going to happen. I don't think we're going to see funding given until we see a survival advantage. I don't know whether it'll get approved in the United States. The FDA has gotten very liberal. So we're going to switch track now. Sun's rising in the east as we speak in Australia. Absolutely where it arises, contrary to what very (laughs) very early in the morning. So we're going to just, this is a quick bite, Amelia, mindfulness. Tell us about this. Okay, yeah, before I head off to clinic. So mindfulness is is something that I've probably personally poo-pooed a little bit because I tend to be quite a pragmatic, less touchy-feely sort of person. But there was a very interesting paper presented about mindfulness in breast cancer survivors. This study took about 250 women with uh, baseline uh, minimal levels of depression that were quantifiable. They were between six months and five years post-initial diagnosis and aged 50 or less. And women were assigned to either a mindfulness awareness practices group or a survivorship education group. Now, these groups were group-based in-person programs that were run over several weeks, two hours face-to-face each week, sometimes with homework assignments. And investigators wanted to look at the primary outcome, which was depressive symptoms as to whether, you know, these interventions helped. And there was also a waitlist control. And cutting to the chase, essentially depression scores dropped post-intervention and sustained over three to six months in both of the groups. Anxiety levels dropped but were not sustained. But it was really only in the mindfulness group where the secondary endpoints of things like fatigue, hot flushes, insomnia and sleep disturbance actually dropped and it had some effect. So essentially mindfulness awareness practices, which is essentially giving patients the tools to be aware of their emotions and reactions in the moment which they're happening and then 
sort of being able to turn these sort of negatives into positives seemed to be quite effective. Survivorship education, incidentally, was looking at more sort of survivorships of didactic teaching about nutrition, genetics, body image, relationships, quality of life. So, you know, empowering patients through knowledge, I suppose, is the best way of thinking of it. But yeah, I'm not sure whether this is an intervention that works for everybody or whether it would work for a particular subsection of the population. It's important to to note that the women in this study were predominantly white. So I wonder if you come from perhaps a more marginalised or a different cultural background, you may not like sort of mindfulness as much. I'm not sure. This is something that if you're worried about where the next paycheck is coming in and how you're going to put food on the table, maybe thinking about your feelings is maybe not going to be the best intervention. I'm not sure. So, Steve, you're from New York. Surely that is the city of mindfulness. Is it used a lot there? I have no idea. (laughs) I'm hardly ever in the centre of the city anymore. Two museum visits in the last five months. So, If you had an intervention, a short course, two hours a week for six weeks, which gives young women in pain relief of their depression and symptoms of depression for six months, costs somewhere between 75 and 200 American dollars, and that's in California, probably be cheaper in Iowa. Would you do it? Absolutely. Recommend it? So, yeah, who needs it? Women who are depressed. If you're living hand to mouth, you need it more. Whether it works is something else again, whether you can apply it. The talk I didn't give from the trenches was about this paper. And I think we should all be screening patients to one page screening form. Do you have little interest or pleasure in doing things? Zero to three. Do you feel down, depressed or hopeless? Zero to three. You have poor appetite or do you overeat? Zero to three. You add this up. And if she scores eight or nine, or more, see if you can find a mindfulness course for Would you consider, though, mindfulness alone, or would you maybe try and tailor things and maybe send certain patients off to get survivorship education? I can only think from a personal point of view, mindfulness for me wouldn't work, but I think education would. So education was just telling ladies about breast cancer and what it means and what everyone else experiences, and that they should have that anyway. She thinks it's suitable for online use, and she's going to do a study, if she gets the funding, doing it online in many centers with more instructors. This was three centers. There were only six instructors for mindfulness, and there were different ones for survivorship. So we have a big problem with this sort of allied health workforce and just referring and access, but online would certainly help if that was as effective. And it's something that the breast cancer lobby group may take up, but probably to be provided outside of the traditional hospital by hospital system. These things need to be, I think, provided in the community. It's cheap. So you don't need a hospital to do it. A charity will do fine. And it's the sort of thing that could easily be done by a charity with modest means. Since it can be done online, especially in the epidemic, but when the epidemic is gone, it can still be done online. And if it works half as well, as Patty Gann said it did, it's worth it. I'm being mumbled all the time. We just need to move <laughs> I've got three I want to touch on in the survivorship space. Amelia, yes, no. Be careful of opioids 
in the post-reconstruction space, post-mastectomy space? Yes, absolutely. Be careful. Obviously, you know, this is interrogation of a database, so we don't know whether the medications were taken, etc. But, you know, we do know that opioid sort of misuse, you know, prescription drug misuse is, is a huge and probably underestimated problem. Certainly, I think in our clinics, you know, it's not unusual to have patients who are still using sedatives and things, you know, months to years afterwards. So I think this is something that we're probably not recognising. Okay. The question of safety of pregnancy after a diagnosis of breast cancer, is that now something we don't need to study? Is that done now? I think it's something that we can reassure our patients about. So, you know, although there is a reduced chance of having pregnancies in, this was offered incidentally a systematic uh, literature review and meta-analysis of studies looking at pregnancy post-diagnosis of breast cancer. So data on, I think, about 115,000 patients. So, Although it does show that there is a reduced risk of having a pregnancy compared to the general population, and there are some risks of some complications, particularly that of lower birth weight and small for gestational age and preterm labour, there is no significant increased risk of congenital defects. And what we've known beforehand of you know, patient prognosis not being affected has also been underlined by this meta-analysis. Yeah. That's often the question, isn't it, about safety for the for, the, for the women, no. It's basically something that we can say to reassure women who are wanting to try for pregnancy after. So they didn't specifically address high-risk women with ER-positive tumors, you know, high-risk being many positive nodes, and ER-positive tumors, and whether their pregnancies didn't lead to bad consequences a few years later. That's a lot harder. It's very reassuring for a young woman with a low-risk tumor who's young enough so she didn't get chemotherapy, didn't lose her ovarian function, wasn't on tamoxifen past her fertility, uh, past the end of her fertility, that she could get pregnant. At least the last time I looked at this literature, there wasn't enough follow-up on survivors of high-risk tumors to show that pregnancy didn't deleteriously affect the survival. Now, there aren't that many high-risk tumors anymore. Most of them are, you know, Less than three positive notices in young women. And some of them are mutation carriers where we urge them uh, to have their uh, ovaries out before they get ovarian cancer. So I, I think it's reassuring and it's nice. And I don't think we should deny our breast cancer patients the joys of having children and raising a family. And for the BRCA patients, they're encouraged to have children before the age of 40, so the ovaries can come out yes. then. In the United States, at least, there is what amounts to a legal obligation to inform them that they can do in vitro fertilization and embryo selection so that they can be sure that they're not passing their cancer gene onto their children. Does that make sense? I don't know if I said it's that. It's pre-implantation genetics. Right. It's yep. pre-implantation and embryo selection so you don't pass it on. There have been lawsuits for babies born carrying the mutation for a failure to warn in the United States. And so the last study I wanted, hoping we'd touch on briefly in the survivorship space, Steve, you put forward the diabetes risk reduction diets. This is an interesting one. Tell us about that. So I'm nowhere near as careful and have the memory that Amelia has. 
I have notes, Steve. <laughs> I can't read my notes either. I'm sure I can read yours. So this was a study that said if you eat a prudent diet, the diabetic risk reduction diet is a low glycemic load diet. Eat a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, not a lot of fat, not a lot of animal fat. You live longer after having breast cancer. That's kind of a no-brainer. Right. These diets, uh, prudent diets, have long been known to be associated with less heart disease, less cerebrovascular disease and longer life. Most breast cancer patients don't die of breast cancer anymore. They die of something else. If they eat a prudent diet, that's a New York City term. Uh, it was a low cholesterol, low animal fat diet 50 years before anyone had proved it was important. They'll live longer. And I think that's what this study showed. It was a 0.69 hazard reduction for all-cause mortality and a 0.87 for breast cancer-specific mortality. So as you say, the prudent diet probably makes sense and you live. Yes, I worry about breast cancer-specific mortality because they took this from very large databases. And I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, death certificates should be filed in the library with other fiction. Diagnoses are just not reliable. Did the patient have cancer? Yes, answers the doctor. The funeral director says, write down cancer so they can bury mom. Yeah. That's how it goes in New York. So I don't believe cancer specific mortality unless they checked every patient and made sure at least that she had metastatic breast cancer before she died. So this was uh, 8,000 women in the nurses' health study. So interesting data anyway. It's not a randomized trial. It adds weight to the fact that as well as mindfulness, avoiding opiates, is that we should be encouraging healthy diets. So there is a study, a randomized study run by Rowan Schlebowski, looking at a low-fat diet and prognosis after breast cancer. And the study was a positive study. They expected it would be positive in ER-positive women because you change estrogen metabolism if you have a lot of fat. And it was positive only for ER negative women. So you scratch your head and you go on and you tell everybody, please eat less fat. But cardiovascular disease in breast cancer survivors is of significant concern. And particularly if you have early menopause or or induced menopause. Now, we're almost out of time. So Amelia, I think, has to leave. I do. I'm so sorry. Okay, Steve, so Eva and Amelia have had to rush off to their clinics. So we'll quickly do some abstracts regarding some new treatments. Let's start with Keynote 355 in triple negative breast cancer. So Keynote 355 is a study combining pembrolizumab with three different chemotherapies, one of them that doesn't require uh, corticosteroid pretreatment. So in this report, we learned that Taxol, that does require it, did a little bit better than Nabpaclitaxel, which doesn't require it. It's very weak information, though, because all the benefit in 355 was in women who were pdl one positive. And with this test, it's a combined prognostic score. It had to be 10% or more. So anyway, there were only 44 such women randomized two to one to pembrolizumab or not. So the, the control group is very small, probably about 15 women. What we're missing is what's most important. The time of the analysis 
presented at ASCO, and this analysis was December 19th, 2019. The median follow-up was 26 months. So as we speak, the median follow-up is now 38 months, which is 13 months beyond the median follow-up of atezolizumab plus nabpaclitaxel when it was published, when it was updated, actually. We ought to have the overall survival information. We don't. The excuse given is we haven't had enough deaths yet to do the final analysis. And skeptical, cynical man that I am. So, Steve, is Pembro licensed now in the U.S. for use in these? Yes, two months ago, based on a 4.1-month prolongation of progression-free survival. Okay, wow. Okay. I put it to you that another chemotherapy drug added to the taxane could probably get you about the same thing. Yeah. And so are people using it in general? Is there a drive to use them or more? The answer is I don't know. You know, Pembro is a very successful drug. So if a few more triple negative metastatic breast cancer patients get it, it won't change the, sa- the overall sales much. I haven't seen any data, but I haven't looked for it either. The treatment that has one study with markedly improved survival was a tezolizumab with napaclitaxel. So for my patients, I offer them that and I tell them, Lord, I hope it's true. But the report in the study that found this, they promised not to analyze overall survival in the PDL1 subgroup. And they did it anyway and got it approved for that anyway. So again, I guess we need longer follow-up to really start. No, we need the information. The yeah. follow-up is there. We just yeah. need to find it. Yep. All right. So again, let's switch tack. There was another paper that took my eye on a drug called Sacituzumab govitecan. Sacituzumab govitecan. Okay, so this is a drug antibody conjugate that sticks to a substance on a whole lot of different cancers called trope 2 and some trophoblast antigen. What it is doesn't matter. The son of a gun, the thing works. There was a randomized prospective trial against run-of-the-mill chemotherapy, drugs given one at a time, versus this drug. And they didn't work at all, and this drug worked in twice pretreated metastatic triple negative cancer with a response rate of 35%, and there was a survival advantage. So this had been reported in a phase two study before. I paid no attention. Who knows who they selected? But this is a good randomized phase three trial. So I think now if you have, of course, it's fiendishly expensive, but if you have some poor dying lady with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, especially if she's in pain, you really want to give her this drug. So. Are there some people we shouldn't give it to? That was the point of this current abstract. So they looked at BRCA1 and BRCA2 carriers. There were just a handful of these, and it seemed to work as well as them as it did in everyone else. The other issue is, are there some women who have less trope 2 on the cancer cell surface so it doesn't work as well and something else would work better? So these statistics, I'm not sure whether these statistics are convincing. In all the groups with high or low trope 2 expression, there was asasituzumab worked better than the physician's choice, which were basically inactive drugs. They weren't bad drugs. They just don't work yeah. in this setting. Because of their second and third line. The benefit, the response rate and time to progression went down, decreased as the 
expression of trope 2 on the cancer cells decreased. This was measured by immunohistochemistry. It's a very simple test. Yeah, so an interesting drug. So SN38 payload on an antibody gets cleaved and it appears to induce single-strand tumor. So It supposedly releases outside the cell, so there's a bystander effect. It's like shooting a nuclear bomb, a nuclear missile. When it lands, it kills everything around, but apparently not very well. So the cancers that don't have as much expression did seem to have lower response rates. The presentation was still better than the control, and that's true. But if we ever have an alternative, then the alternative might prove better in the women whose cancers have lower trope 2 expression, at least by this test. Now, the other antibody drug conjugate, while we're on that, but this time in heavily pretreated HER2-positive patients, was the DESTINY study. Trastuzumab DRUX-TCAN. NXKI on the end, dash NXKI. So it's a bit of a mouthful. I never say that part. <laughs> it's like the honorifics in England. I never say OBE or KCB. <laughs> but some interesting results. These were heavily pretreated her 2 patients, 61% response rate, and at 18 months, 75% of them were alive. Yes, it's a wonderful drug. No woman with metastatic HER2-positive cancer should be allowed to die without getting it. Wow. Big statement. You heard that first here on the Oncology Journal. No, you heard it a year ago when Ian Crop presented the study. And is this further follow-up? Is that was a difference at this meeting or...? I missed the paper at this meeting, Okay, <laughs> but it's still a very right. good drug. I have one lady I'm giving it to now. It's actually better tolerated than TDM1. Yeah, great. I did note that this flagged 15% of patients with interstitial lung disease, so that was a flag to watch out for. Interesting. So they said last year's symposium was 11-month follow-up, and this was longer follow-up, and the FDA is now granted as accelerated approval, I understand. so well, It's approved. I have a patient who bought it. Fantastic. So is there anything else that took your eye, Steve? Oh, you mentioned Prime 2. So does that allow us to avoid radiotherapy in some older women who would normally be given adjuvant radiotherapy following breast conservation surgery? The answer is we've been doing that for the last decade anyway. There was a big American study run by Kevin Hughes, who's now at the Massachusetts General Hospital, that did this in women over 70 with primaries two centimeters or less and no palpable nodes, and hardly any of them died of breast cancer. The interesting thing from the current presentation was that women with low estrogen receptor immunohistochemistries had a much higher relapse rate in the breast, about 20% at 10 years, much more than they had in the previous report, which was only five years. And you might want to consider radiating such patients. Uh, It's certainly a conversation. You can view the glass as 20% empty or 80% full. 80% of the women didn't get radiated, didn't relapse, and died of something else eventually. It really depends on how much the patient doesn't want to relapse. You can reassure the patient that very few women die of the relapse. So basically what you're saying is bother everybody now will bother relapsers a little bit more when they relapse and have shown they need it. That's the conversation that should happen. So I guess that's closing the loop a little bit. With the start of this podcast, we talked about our exponder and the ability to maybe avoid chemo in some women. And so again, this is a bit of a less is more 
theme that it makes sort of common sense, doesn't it, in older ladies, it may be safe just to avoid the radiotherapy and salvage them if they do relapse in the breast. So thank you, Steve. It's been uh, wonderful to catch up with you again. I'll send you a photo of the billabongs that I walked past. <laughs> Didn't I send you one? He did. With I took a photo of some real billabongs. You'll love them. So some of the trees we walked past have been there since before White Settlement in the area. So there's some magnificent river My understanding, at least online, a coolabar tree is a eucalyptus. That's correct. It's a type of eucalyptus, yeah. There's hundreds of different varieties of eucalyptus trees, of course. So we can sometimes see platypus in these bullabongs. We sometimes see kangaroos. We didn't see any yesterday. You sent me a photo of an emu. Unfortunately, they're quite rare. They're more in inland Australia. Anyway, it's been great to see you. The pleasure is mine. I'm sorry I talked too long, but these predictive tests are very complicated. They are. And the problem with it is the accompanying literature is often quite misleading. Yeah. I'd encourage everybody to look at the meeting entitled View from the Trenches. Steve chaired it. It was a really good session. So if you can get access to it, that's certainly worth a look. It will be great, hopefully, sometime in 2021 or maybe early 2022 when we can all be together again. Yep. And maybe we'll share a Foster's. That sounds like a great idea, mate. (laughs) Take care. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.